This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Uh, welcome everyone to Teachers Talk Radio. We are just getting set up. We're waiting for uh, Roger's history. Hi, Tom, give me a wave there. Uh, we're waiting for, uh, yeah, uh, it is Tom Rogers, and he'll be talking to Dylan William tonight. Um, so we are just waiting for the space to fill up. Bear with me as I get all our bits and pieces together. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Right, good evening everybody and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you very much for tuning in uh, to our programme this evening. We're going to be joined by Dylan William in just a few minutes. Uh, We're going to be adding him as a speaker. Um, I'm going to be co-hosting this. Nathan's on the admin admin today. Uh, Dylan William really needs no introduction. If we're talking about somebody who has had the one of the biggest impacts on education that I can think of in my career, it would probably be him. He would be right up there. Um, some of the questions that I'm going to ask him today are going to be a bit of fun. Uh, other questions are going to be obviously focusing on teaching and learning, focusing on the things that matter to teachers around the world, the things that are on teachers' minds. Uh, around the world, the things that are impacting them and and what they're doing in their communities. Um, I've invited Dylan to speak. Dylan, if you can see the request on your screen, hopefully you can just click accept and then we can bring you in as well. But while while we're waiting for Dylan to join us, I just thought I would highlight some of the supporters of this show on Teachers Talk Radio. We've got Witherslack Group and at the moment Witherslack Group are celebrating the launch of a brand new school called Luxborough Court School. It's in Chigwell in Essex. And they have a very special uh, inspirational education event taking place on Wednesday, the 29th of June, which is in two days' time. Um, And you can join that. And it's all about um, autism. And it's completely free to attend. Uh, You can can check it out at witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash events. You can sign up there. um, And it's sure to be brilliant. It's in two days' time. Uh, with Witherslack Group, and I'm sure Nathan will, will share details of that in the pinned tweets that are in the space. Just a few admin things in the space. You can see at the top some of the, the pinned messages we've got. I should probably give a shout-out to the competition we've currently got running, which is a giveaway of five books. If you just retweet and follow TTR, then you've got a chance of winning those five books. Really good competition. Brilliant five books to win. I'd like to welcome some of the people who've joined us already. Laura's here. Uh, we've got Paul, we've got Stephen, we've got Fabian, we've got uh, Miss WD, that's Miss Dannon. We've got Sam, uh, Gareth, uh, Mr. Shu, who is a regular TTR listener, is here. We've got Jan, who is also a regular TTR listener, I think, in Holland over there. We've got Dale, who is coming to the Teachers Talk Radio party on Saturday. Great to see you, Dale. Uh, we've got lots of people here. Goodness me. Uh, Dylan, can you hear me okay? Might need to unmute yourself, possibly. Don't know. Can anyone hear Dylan talking, or is it just me who can't? 
Hello, Dylan. Can you hear me? Hello. Hi. Yes, can me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. I can, thank you. Fantastic. Okay. Um, do you know what I'm going to do, Dylan, to start off with? And you can say pass on any of these that you want to. I've got some like quick fire get to know you questions. Um, okay. So you, you can say pass if you want to pass on any of these. So where are you from and where did you grow up? Um, I was originally from Wales. I was born in Bangor, then spent some time in Aberystwyth and then Cardiff. Went to a Welsh language primary school. Learned to speak English around about the age of 10 in order to take the 11 plus. Moved to Manchester when I was 13, which rubbed off my Welsh accent. Uh, <laughs> University of Durham, and then most of my working life spent in London. And um, when you were a child, did you think you'd be doing this podcast? No. <laughs> but then, yeah, then I thought, I, I, originally I wanted to play rugby <laughs> and then be a musician. Um, mm. And so, no. <laughs> <laughs> the book that you would buy a friend in a second-hand bookshop if you were to walk in one now? Depends on the friend. Um, but the one I really love, and it's quite hard to get hold of, is one called Exploratory Data Analysis by John Tukey. <laughs> and it, and it's, it's just like, for anybody who's a tall numerate, it's just like rooting around in an antique shop. It's just got so much in there. It's just one person's, one incredible mind's reflection on data analysis and it's just a wonderful uh, that would be in my desert island <laughs> yeah what what's the best job you've ever had uh, i think of the one i've got right now which is to have no job <laughs> to be self to be self-employed and do exactly what i want so ironically uh, i remember tony ben once said he was leaving parliament to focus on 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 politics and i i left university life to focus on teaching and research yeah uh, the best city you've ever visited? It's very difficult. Um, probably, probably Sydney. Mm. Maybe Vancouver. Maybe uh, Melbourne. But, you know, in terms of just everything you want, I think it still has to be London. Yeah. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Favourite all-time quote, and you can't choose your own. Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot was asked to explain good teaching, and she described it as ideas conveyed through relationships. Wow, I love that. Um, most admired ed educationalist. It's very hard because there are <laughs> so many people making so many different I know. things. I, know. I, I, I would say Dan Willingham. Okay. Daniel Willingham, just because he's spent so much of the last 10 years trying to communicate core ideas in psychology to the improvement of educational processes. So if, there's, you know, if there was a Nobel Prize for education, I think that he'd be the top of my list. Okay, this next bit, you have to choose one or the other. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, USA or UK? USA. Tom Jones or Elvis Presley? Tom Jones. Beer or wine? Beer. Dancing or singing? Singing. Trad or prog? <laughs> Jazz, prog. <laughs> knowledge rich or just knowledge? Oh, knowledge rich. Silent corridors or quiet corridors? Quiet. Direct instruction or discovery learning? Direct instruction with big D, big I. <laughs> teaching or talking about teaching? Teaching. That's it. 
Dylan, I've run out of of you of things you need to pick. You'll be utterly relieved to know. Um, so yeah, I, I may add some later, but we'll see. But obviously, the whole context of this is to dig into some teaching and learning stuff. Now, I thought I'd start off with this quote, which I found of yours, which I I tweeted out the other day, and it, I, a lot of people engaged with it. A lot of people seemed to resonate. There were some people who who disagreed or wanted to find out more. I'll read the quote out. In many countries. We have gone way too far towards the rights of the child that is behaving badly and forgetting about the rights of the children in the classroom with that child who can't learn as a result. So I was wondering, what do you mean by this? What's the background? What's the story? And what, what, what's your thinking around that? Well, the first thing to say is I'm talking about the classroom. So, you, you know, we can have a debate about whether education should be a human right. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that we all children need to receive an education. Um, the, the question is, what's the best way to do that? And so some students have special needs that we know can't be t- uh, catered for in the typical classroom. Um, I, I had a nephew who was born um, with multiple profound disabilities, you know, couldn't even sit up straight, blind. Um, and, you know, so that kind of child does not belong in the mainstream classroom. The question is where we draw the line. And in my view, there's been a push towards mainstreaming, which I understand. But I also think that we have to think about how we do that. And too often, the resources that should be with that child do not follow that child into the classroom with the result of disruption for the others. The other thing to say, I think, is that I think rights is the wrong framework for thinking about this. So I'm very taken with the work of Ronald Coase. And he's very famous for actually something called Coase's theorem. And so typically we have, you know, rights. I have rights, you have rights. And what Coase was suggesting is that leads to inefficient outcomes. What we should do is to seek what's the best way of resolving the concerns of everybody involved. And so it might be that you don't have rights. So you you have fewer rights because, you know, you enforcing your rights makes it much more unfavorable for other people. You know, I insist on these rights. And so I think we should be searching for Coasean solutions to the challenge of educating all our children. Mm. And that might mean taking some children out of mainstream classrooms and maybe then having larger classes for those, for those mainstream classes in order to free up the resources so the students who really need much more intensive support to thrive get those resources. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that a lot of the, the, the kind of strong response maybe on both sides was from uh, class, a, a lot of the responses were from classroom teachers who felt maybe, uh, on one side at least, frustrated at um, situations where lots of children in the class couldn't learn because of, I don't know, the low-level disruption or disruption of, of kind of uh, one or two students. So I think that's where that resonated um, with with many of the teachers who commented. There was also those who commented to say, well, you know, is this about kind of taking away uh, the rights of, of children when obviously the rights of children have, have gone through a process where we've arrived at where we are now? So it's kind of like rolling back, if you like. I think that's the phrase somebody used is the rolling back of the rights for children. I wondered what you think of those kind of two things around that statement. Well, obviously, I have, I have greatly sympathy with the first set of views you expressed. The second view is, I'm not, I, I, I'm not saying that the, the children who are difficult to educate don't, have, don't d- deserve and need an education. I'm just saying 
we should actually think about the solutions that are best for everybody, not just that one child. So, for example, I mean, this is a stereotypical example. Yeah. But if one child would benefit slightly more by being in a mainstream classroom and slightly less by being withdrawn, but that produces a disproportionate benefit for the children who are left behind, then I think we should seriously consider that. But it's always looking for that cosian solution of, you know, what's the best way of resolving this rather than saying that this child has a right to be edu educated in a mainstream classroom. I don't think that kind of that kind of position leads to sensible outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, we might come back to that. And by the way, everybody, everyone listening, we've got lots and lots of people listening. If you want to tweet a question or a comment, you can do so using the hashtag TT Radio. And Nathan, who is adminning today, will uh, will retweet it, and then maybe we'll pin it to the space as well. So then we can read some of the comments out during the space. So if you do want to get involved, you absolutely can do. Just go to the little uh, tweet icon in the bottom right-hand side, the little plus button, write your tweet out. It'll automatically put the hashtag TT Radio on, or if it doesn't, just add it there, and then we'll add it into the space. Next question, Dylan, and again, I've chosen some of your quotes for this. The things that are not in the curriculum, the omissions, what students are not being told about or hearing about in their education, question mark. So I wanted to ask you, what is missing and what well, should what should be included in the, I put the British curriculum here, but I mean any curriculum that isn't there, or is that just within the context of each case? The point I'm making there is that the best definition of curriculum that I've come across is Dennis Lawton's definition of a curriculum being a selection from a culture of a society. And so while I have views about what might be in the curriculum, I think we should spend far more time articulating how we as a society decide what should be in the school curriculum. And this is why I think the work, work of E.D. Hirsch is so important in the United States. And his, his project was to try to find out what do you need to know in order to transact effectively in the public sphere? And so in, the America, in America, they took the view, for example, that religion is so important, it shouldn't be in the public sphere, it should be in the private sphere. When I was um, being interviewed by Nick Gibb, uh, the schools minister, um, with a view to being put on an advisory committee to look at the National Curriculum Review back in uh, about 10, 12 years ago, I said to him that what we needed in, in England was a five to 10 year project where we actually have a debate about what should be in the school curriculum. And, you know, I said that we can't do what E.D. Hirsch did in America because right now we don't have consensus about what those things are. I certainly don't think it should be officials of the Department for Education deciding that. The point I'm trying to make here is that we need to find a way of coming up with an agreed set of principles about what should be in the curriculum for, um, for in the national curriculum for all young people in, in England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. And we don't have that at the moment. Why, why do you think that hasn't happened then? If that was 10 to 12 years ago that you were having those discussions with Nick Gibb and so on and so forth, why, is that because it's been so difficult? Is that because it just hasn't been done? I mean, what's, what, what do you think's kind of stopping that from happening? Well, first of all, it is hard. But I think there's also the political economy of reform. Uh, ministers are generally not interested in what's best. They're interested in what works for their political agenda. You know, I'm reminded of Jean-Claude Juncker's famous quote, we all know what we need to do. What we haven't figured out is how to get re-elected after we've done it. 
question. So the, the important point is marking out territory in your political campaign that your opponents can't occupy and is popular with your constituencies. So you know, I think that people aren't interested in giving up that kind of power uh, because yeah. they, they, they'd rather determine the curriculum centrally from from the Department for Education. And I'm saying, well, let's that that, that will inevitably be subject to the um, swings of political power. What we need is an agreement around a set of ideas for the curriculum that will transcend any change of government. What role? What role do you think parents should have in curriculum design? Um, I know that's a question you've asked recently in another podcast. Is what role should parents have in curriculum design? And stating that you feel we need a broader input from all in that design process. So I'm wondering, what role do you think parents should have? Well, I think we have to be careful about how we use the word curriculum. So mm. too often the word curriculum is used to mean a range of things from what should the outcomes of education be down to what are students going to study this week in this classroom. So for me, I think parents should have a strong role in saying what we want young people to learn about in school. And if you, can, if you want to call that curriculum, I'm fine with that. They should say what, you know, and employers should also be yeah. um, having an input. And, you know, basically everybody in society, because, you know, if students are illiterate, then they actually affect everybody's quality of life. You know, if we have a, an, an underclass of students. So you know, everybody has a stake in society. You know, the, 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 pr the trap we fall into is we think that the major consumer of education is the parent. And I, do, I think that's just wrong. I think the, the consumer of education is the whole of society. Yeah. So we, we, we need to have strong input from all stakeholders, that means everybody, about what we want young people to be able to do by the time they leave school. But if by curriculum we mean how should we get there, then I think parents actually have a lesser role to play because they don't know. They don't know the best ways to get students to be able to do the things we want them to be able to do. And that's where I think the expertise of professionals, teachers in particular, should come in. So I think that it depends which level of the system you're talking about and de different levels are covered by this word curriculum. Yeah. But, but if you, how do I get students to learn the things I want people to be able to do by the age of 18 or 16? Then parents, I think, shouldn't have much role in that because they don't know. Mm. Mm. Uh, uh, we've had a comment, actually. I'm just going to read it out. This is going back, I think, to what we were talking about in the very first uh, bit where we were talking about the, the statement around um, uh, the rights of all children in the classroom. And this, the, the tweet coming in is from Miss Harris. We need more funding for more special schools that can meet the needs of neurodiverse learners instead of trying to shoehorn them into a mainstream setting. I wondered, Dylan, what your views are on um, the kind of underfunding of, of special schools, alternative provision, um, and various other, you know, institutions and organisations, particularly in the UK, do you feel that they need more money, and do you feel that they need more, uh, um, more of a focus than what they've been getting? Well, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, when I was a, a teacher trainer, I remember having a a cohort of about 10 PGC student teachers who were in my tutor group. And I remember being, in, in, in the course of a week, I was in a school in Tower Hamlets, a school in Barnet, and a school in Chelmsford, I think. 
And, you know, one pretty average student teacher managed to create a pretty good learning experience for all the, all the students in, in the 30, 33 students in that classroom in Chelmsford. In Barnet, um, this, me and the student teacher together, team teaching, did a reasonable job. In the Tower Hamlet School, there was me and another teacher and the student teacher, and we barely kept the lid on. And so my view is that, you know, challenging students require a great deal more resources. In other words, what I'm saying is, in that classroom town hamlets, you'd actually have to spend three times as much money per kid to create, to, to equalize the learning opportunities. Now, that's mm. just an anecdote. But I, I think that in general, we do need to probably spend more on special education. But we also have to make sure it's properly spent. Because in America, we spend a huge amount on special education. And a lot of that is not, in my view, uh, appropriately spent. So you you know, the people who say that money doesn't matter can easily point to places where more money has been spent with no benefit yes. to students. And so, yes, I think we probably should spend a bit more money, maybe quite a lot more money on special education, but I'm not sure that we know how to do that effectively. In particular, I'm not sure whether we need, know how to do this within um, mainstream versus special schools. So one of the things that worries me about special schools is that students who actually would quite be quite able to participate with others in um, many activities, particularly around you know playtime, don't get the chance to do that because they're in a, a different building. So I would much rather see um, in special schools integrated into the campuses of mainstream schools and explore those kinds of solutions. Do you think, I mean, talking of wastage, um, what do you think is the biggest thing that governments or... Uh, people in charge of education waste money on? What's the biggest thing that you think they spend the most amount of money on that has the least amount of impact? I think that's a very difficult question to answer. <laughs> well, because... I'm full of them, Dylan. <laughs> I'll tell you why. So, <laughs> so one of the things we do is we keep, you know, the United States has gone way too far down this road. Britain tends to have an average of about 30 kids in a classroom. And, you know, you could say, you could argue, as many economists of education do, that we, if you had larger classes, you could pay teachers more. But the trouble is that behavior is an issue. So in Australia and in the UK, uh, student behavior means that classes of 40 would be very difficult to manage. So I think that, you know, I, I don't see a huge amount of inefficiencies. I, and, mm, and, yeah. And the ones, and, and ones that arise are not caused by government. They are caused by people's responses to what they think the government wants. Yeah. But I would say the, the biggest inefficiency I see is teachers marking students' work in a way that has almost no benefit for the learner and takes a huge amount of teacher time. Now, that, so, is, inter that is interesting, the marking thing. Um, I mean, would... <laughs> Which it like there's a lot of teachers who who do like marking though. You know, I know I did a show quite a while ago with with a, um, a variety of teachers, and some were saying, you know, um, I like marking and I want to do it, and I think it's good and it's important, and you know, and and uh, and the the way the students can see that marking in the book and they can respond to a comment or they can see the text and so on, and, so, and they need to see that the work has been looked at and so on and so forth, and they just thought it was it needed to be done and they spent yeah. hours, and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours doing it and then we had other teachers who were up the other end of the spectrum who said no you know evidence suggests that there isn't that much impact and therefore we are actually doing a disservice to uh 
other things we could be spending our time on as opposed to marking the map. Now, presumably you would sit with the latter on that. No, too. not necessarily. For okay. me, it's always, it, it, it goes back to the work of an Italian economist named Wilfredo Pareto. And his idea is, he, he's known for the 80-20 rule, but that's not his most important work. The idea is, can we take the resources we've got and allocate them in a different way and get a better outcome? So, you know, everybody wants more money, more time, and that'd be great. But given the resources we've got, could we make better use of that? So if the teacher is faced with students who will not do any work unless that work is going to be marked, then that teacher's time spent marking that work may be being spent optimally. There may be no other way of spending that time because if the teacher stops marking that work, the students will stop working. I still think that teacher should be trying to get students to be more intrinsically motivated. But for me, it's always, you know, looking back and saying, did I spend that last hour, of, if it's with my family or with yeah. my work, in a way that I'm happy about? So one of the things I ask people to do is to think about, if you had one more hour a day, what would you do with it? Then call that X. If you had one fewer hour in the day, what would you stop doing? Call that Y. If X is not equal to Y, then replace Y with X. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, I say to teachers, I think you're spending too much time marking. And they say, are you saying marking is no good? No, marking is good. But just consider that that hour you spent marking could have been spent in a different way that would have resulted in even more student learning. And that's yeah. the real challenge here, is to, yeah. to move away from this is bad, this is good, to this is good, but this is even better. Because yeah. I've, I've come to the conclusion that opportunity cost is the single most important concept in school improvement. Because every hour that teachers and students spend on one thing is an hour they don't have to spend on something else. Yeah, that is really interesting. And in the sense of, um, on that then, if, if that was you, and you did that calculation, right, and you decided, okay, you know what, I'm not going to spend that hour doing marking, but you still wanted to do something as uh, in terms of, as a teacher, whether that be planning, whether that be resourcing me, what would you, if you had that precious hour, what, what would you be spending it on if you decided that you weren't going to mark? Well, I would, I would mark, but I'd mark in a different way. So in a book yeah. called What Does This Look Like in the Classroom, I contributed some ideas. Uh, this is edited by Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson. I suggested what I call four quarters marking. So I would aim to give detailed feedback to students on 25% of what they do. So they would get detailed feedback about how to improve their, their, their own progress. I'd spend 25% on whole class marking. So I'd take yeah. all the books and scan through them and say, which topics have I taught badly and need to do in a different way? 25% on peer assessment, 25% on self-assessment. So that, that, that's, you know, I mean, I'm not going to go to the stake on those figures, but that seemed to me a kind of broad, useful starting point for thinking about that. And then communicating these expectations to parents. You know, saying to parents, if, you, if, you, if we mark everything your child does, we won't have time to spend on good, planning good teaching and your child will learn less. You know, parents need to understand, you do not want us marking everything your child does because it's a really poor use of teacher time. Marking some is important, but very quickly you reach diminishing returns and therefore, you know, we should, there are better... There are things that will benefit your child more if we actually do a bit less marking and a bit more planning, a bit more whole class feedback, and so on. 
Yeah, absolutely. If you have a comment uh, or that you want to share on marketing and feedback, then just pop it, you know, pop it on a tweet there, put hashtag TT Radio. We'll read it out. I was going to say, Dylan, what, what's your thoughts on verbal feedback versus written feedback? Do you have any preferences there? Do you think that that 25% that you mentioned of detailed feedback needs to be written or can that be verbal? It can be verbal. Um, it needs to be verbal if the child isn't literate, obviously. Um, yeah. But I think that the, the trouble with verbal feedback is its ephemeral nature. So I think verbal feedback can be very effective if it's combined with some kind of follow-up by the student. So if, with very young children, I might, for example, ask them to speak their reactions to the feedback into some kind of recording device, and then that would actually consolidate. So it, it does three things. First of all, it creates a reminder, it develops their linguistic skills, and basically proves the feedback has been given. For older students, I'd ask them to make some notes about what the teacher said in the verbal feedback. Um, and, and so I think that verbal feedback can be effective, but you have to watch out for the fact that it's very ephemeral in nature, and often students don't remember what they've been told, or they remember it in a very kind of idiosyncratic way. Got you, got you. We've had a question in um, from Fabian. Obviously, we'll be... Uh reading random questions, Dylan, as well as stuff linked to the, the thread of what we're talking about. So this one's from Fabian. I would like to ask Dylan, what is the most important educational breakthrough that you've seen on your travels that we are yet to see in the UK? Is there one? No, there isn't one. Oh. <laughs> so, no, I mean, basically, the best practice I see in each country I visit is is extraordinary. And... You know, I've also seen some pretty dubious practice in a lot of the countries that I visit. But I've come to the conclusion that teacher talent is pretty randomly distributed within an education system. So the, the reason that um, you know, schools don't seem to make a difference, even though the teachers do, is because there's a huge range of expertise in every, in every building. So, um, I, 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 but I, I would come down to, and you, you know, I would say this, wouldn't I? For me, the thing that I, I see in, in many classrooms being used very effectively in the UK, but in still depressingly rare, is teachers getting better evidence for the de for the decisions they need to make in the classroom. So um, it, it's still depressing to me how many classrooms um, we see this standard script with the you know that we would have seen a hundred years ago of a teacher deciding, I need to make a decision about what to do next. I ask a question, I ask the class, six students raise their hands, I choose one of those students, and if that student gives the correct answer, the teacher says, good, and moves on. The fact is that teachers need better evidence about what's going on in students' heads to make better decisions about, what's going, about what to do next in their classrooms. And right now, the evidence that teachers are getting is not particularly representative of the learning needs of the whole group. And just that idea of better evidence leading to better decisions, leading to better learning, that, you know, what I call formative assessment, is still, I think, very rare and very important. Yeah. We'll probably return to that later on. I want to hit you with another one of your quotes here, Dylan, and it's an interesting one. The greatest Somebody asked you the greatest challenge that we have in education, and you said, education systems weren't designed for the world that we now have. Some students understood. Some students didn't understand, and we thought that was okay, because those who didn't would work with their hands. The amount of muscle jobs are declining, and brain jobs are increasing. Everyone 
soon will be a knowledge worker. So I wanted to ask you, how does this marry with, I hate to use the phrase again, curriculum design, but also the subjects that are out there, whether that be BTEX, whether that be the art subjects, whether that be, how does that tie in with the subjects that are currently on the curriculum? You know, what does this, what does this mean for that? I don't think it means very much at all, actually, because the, the subjects that are in the curriculum are choices we make as a society about what we think young people need to be learning. I think what the quote that, I, that you read out um, signals for yes. me is basically what Benjamin Bloom was talking about 50 years ago in terms of mastery learning. He said 50 years ago, it's an extremely relevant quote today, we can regard our educational efforts as a failure to the extent that our results resemble a normal distribution. If we're getting a bell curve of results, that's what nature gives us. We, you know, people don't like to admit this, but the fact is that some students find learning easier than others. And if you treat all students the same, you will get the bell curve, because some students find it learning easy and some students find learning hard. So what Bloom was saying was that we need to make our teaching contingent rather than linear. We need to actually find out what the students learned, and if they didn't learn what we want them to learn, then we do something about it. And I think that the problem is that the, for a long time, we accept that the bell curve is natural, which in some senses it is, because students vary in their ability to learn school stuff. You know, school stuff isn't everything, but school stuff seems to be quite important. The question is, what do you do in the face of that? And as David yeah. Hume, the philosopher, said, you can't deduce an ought from an is. The fact that something is the case does not mean it ought to be the case. And I think our teaching should be far more contingent. We should be worried about the whole group rather than just the high flyers. And because, because basically everybody needs to reach a certain level of numeracy and literacy to participate effectively in society. We can argue about what that benchmark is, but I think that the PISA benchmark of roughly 420 points, where the international average is 500, they, that's what they reckon you need in terms of numeracy and literacy to participate effectively in society. So my major goal of education is to get every single school leaver up to that level of achievement. And every time we don't do that, we regard that as a failure, not just as a consequence of the natural spread involved in the bell curve. Now, we won't necessarily get there, but if we think of every child who leaves our schools unable to participate effectively in society as somebody we failed we would re-engineer our schooling systems, I think, in a very different way to the way they are now. Yeah, it's interesting, this this concept, isn't it, of, of I, I, and that we are going to come on to assessment um, within, within the discussion, but you mentioned this idea of if a student has left school a certain age without the qualifications, we, we have, or sometimes we do, consider them as having failed. So are you are you challenging that notion or are you agreeing with it but saying that like um we we need to that we need to change to adapt or or what 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 is your point with that? Well you, you use the word qualifications, which I didn't use yeah. and I don't think we should yeah. I don't think it's helpful in this debate. No. What I'm saying is that whatever the curriculum in place, we we now know that a certain level of numeracy and literacy is required to participate effectively in society. And what I'm saying is if we don't get that for every child, then we should actually think of that as a failure on our part rather than just a consequence of the natural range of abilities in human beings. That's the, that's the important Got point. Worrying far, worrying far more about the bottom end of the achievement range than the top end. 
Yeah, that was actually going to gonna kind of lead on nicely to my next thing. You also said, I worry far more about children who find learning more difficult. Our society depends on those children. Directing more resources to those who need it to be successful. So yeah. how do we get, you know, if, if I was to ask you how we get all children to that level, can you tell me what your top three things would be? Well, I think, first of all, deciding what kinds of things you want to develop in young people. So I think David Geary's distinction between biologically primary and biologically secondary knowledge is useful. The point he makes is that recognizing faces, learning, recognizing speech, is these things are not innate, but children learn to do these things in a particularly in a rich environment. Maths, reading, writing are biologically secondary. They're not things we've evolved to do. So as a first order, I would say that if you, if you want students to learn to speak and to listen, then the best way to do that is through play and exploration. If you want students to learn how to solve equations, then the best way to do that is through some formal kind of input. The other thing I would say is that I've changed my mind in the last few years about the trade-off between achievement and interest in learning. So if we raise the achievement of all our 18-year-olds, but they leave our schools with their passion for learning extinguished, that passion for learning that every four-year-old has naturally, if we wipe that out, then no matter how much we taught our students, we have failed them because it's not possible to learn everything you need to learn for the rest of your life by the age of 18 anymore. So for me, it's about nurturing that kind, those, those dispositions that Guy Claxton talks about, resourcefulness, inventiveness, um, collaboration, and all those other kinds of things, which are probably biologically primary, and therefore they can't be taught, but they can be developed by creating rich environments. So the, the, so the first thing would be to be clear about what kinds of, what kind of capability is this? Is this something that's natural, or is this yeah. something that is actually unnatural? People are often saying these days, human beings human beings are natural storytellers and we learn best from stories. That's true, but it's very hard to explain how to solve a quadratic equation with a story. So yes, we are natural story learners, but unfortunately, the things we need our children to learn in schools are often not that kind of thing. They're biologically secondary, not biologically primary. So that would be the first thing, you know, being, being clear about, is this the kind of thing that is best developed through play and exploration and investigation, or is it something that's best learned through formal step-by-step -step building of capabilities? Then make the learning contingent. In other words, you know, frequently finding out what students have learned and then making appropriate adjustments. That would be the second thing. The, the third thing I think I would add to that is this idea that every single teacher needs to be improving, not because they're not good enough, but because they can be even better. Classic so, Dylan Williams. I knew you'd get that in, Dylan Williams. So, it's a classic so, Dylan Williams phrase. It's classic. So, it's legendary. <laughs> so the important <laughs> point is this. We should stop trying to figure out how good teachers are and instead create an environment in which every teacher believes they need to improve and support their colleagues in improving. If we could do those three things, I think we could actually transform our education systems. I was going to ask you about um, creativity. Um, yeah. And where that kind of fits into education, because there is that kind of thought, feeling, and I've seen it expressed on social media, I've seen it expressed in the media in general, that direct instruction, knowledge-rich curriculums, 
uh, kind of, uh, you know, the, the characterization of rote learning and all that kind of stuff, uh, chalk and talk, blah, 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 blah. It limits creativity. It doesn't give space for creativity. It doesn't give, um, I mean, there are some who advocate, like you said, we, you know, you were talking about the, um, the teaching that some people advocate for the teaching of creativity, but there are others who advocate for the facilitation of an environment where children can be creative. So I wondered where you think creativity fits into education now, but I suppose more importantly, education in the future, because surely it would be absolutely key to foster that in the sense of like, you think about some economies, even the British economy, but any loads of Western economies that there are so many jobs within creative industries. There are many people who would say that our education system doesn't match up with that. If that makes sense, it does. But the, 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 look, there's a rosy view about these so-called creative industries. You know, I mean, yeah. w- w- what, let's look at the movie industry now. I mean, p- particularly TV with re- with the rise of um, all these new streaming channels. But where are the jobs? Well, look at the credits on a movie. There's there's fifty drivers there. There's fifty caterers there. There's ten or twenty set carpenters. There's electricians. Yeah, and those people. Uh, they are working in the creative industries, but they are there because they have extraordinarily specific skills related to the, the services they're providing. So I think we have, you know, there's a lot of very, very lazy talk about creative industries that just really mm-hmm. doesn't actually bear it much scrutiny. But here's the point I would make that I think is really important. We tend to think of creativity as a skill. And if you ask um, a math teacher and a history teacher, and an English teacher to define creativity, they say very similar things which leads us to believe that creativity is a single skill, but it's not. It's a separate skill in each discipline, but has superficial similarities, which is why we make this fundamental mistake. So here's my role for creativity. It is a crucial audit tool for the curriculum of each discipline. So when we look at our maths curriculum, we check to see that we're developing collaboration and communication and creativity and critical thinking and problem solving. And we apply the same checklist to our history curriculum. If you want students to be creative in mathematics, you have to develop that in mathematics. The other thing about say about creativity, you know, Ken Robinson uses a, a quite well-known definition: um, the idea of having novel ideas that have value. And people forget that second part. To have value, those creative insights need to be steeped within a discipline. So, blowing through the wrong end of a trumpet is not creative. Miles Davis is creative. And I think we, we underestimate the role of disciplinary knowledge in creativity. So yes, we, we need those dispositions. We need students to be keen to explore and to create and to try new things. But those things will be worthless unless they're steeped in the discipline. I think, interestingly enough, um, there was a documentary that was aired a couple of months ago. And I actually interviewed um, Catherine Burblesing on Teachers Talk Radio about four or six weeks ago. It's on the website if anyone wants to listen back to it. But one of the one of the criticisms in that documentary was from Jeremy Paxman. I don't know if you've seen it, Dylan, but no, one, of the, one, of, one of the criticisms of Jeremy Paxman, basically he was saying, I wouldn't have enough time or space to think that in a classroom that was, I, I, I mean, he didn't characterise it as this himself, but I guess that kind of direct instruction classroom you know like that character i'm 
completely characterizing it wrong here, but you get my point. He was saying there was too much happening all the time. And I was going to ask you whether you think that the not only the curriculum, but actually just time in general is too packed. There's not enough space for students to kind of just, I'm not going to use the word bored, obviously, but like space to think and space to foster thoughts or feelings or, you know, or whatever it is. I mean, do you, do you advocate any space for just, I don't know, for like, I guess you could say like reading time, you have reading time in school. Like, I think there was a phrase that was used last week, like dead time or something, but I, I wonder what your thoughts on that. I wonder if like, you think it's too condensed and too intense for well, creativity I, to be fostered. I don't know about that. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't call it dead time if we no. think it has a value in terms of allowing students to recharge their batteries, for example. And there is some research from people like Carol Dweck and others about the importance yeah. of, of, of um, recovery time, um, just, just in terms of what's called ego depletion. But uh, uh, this is all very speculative, and I think we don't know yeah. very much about this. But I, yeah. I, I'm, there are lots of people throwing out opinions by saying I wouldn't have had time to think. So, so for me in mathematics, you know, creativity is important. So I think a good mathematics diet would include direct instruction, big D, big I, which means lots of formative assessment, clear explanations, checking student, checking for student understanding. You know, the real problem we have in this debate is that people automatically assume that when I say that I think that the, the role of education is to increase the contents of long-term memory, people are assuming I'm talking about memorization, and I'm not. Long-term memory is where you keep your knowledge of how to ride a bicycle. If, if you don't have to relearn how to do it, it's in long-term memory. So people automatically assume that the words being used by people are used in the in the way that they use them pejoratively. So now I think there should be time in mathematics for mathematical investigation. I think there should be time in science for exploration, which may be not, not yeah. productive as teaching stuff, but actually yeah. contains that curiosity, the idea that children can find things out. And so there's a balance in each subject. I have no idea what's happening in Michaela School. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, I was only using that as an example. I mean, I, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a very a easy target. It's a very easy target. And my own view is that uh, I don't know of any school that's, that gives zero weight to these, um, uh, the, these aspects of, of the curriculum, the, these broader aspects. And, and as I said earlier, you know, what's crucial is that every 18-year-old leaves compulsory education with the passion for learning that the four-year-old arrives with. Yeah, 100%. I think this would be a good point for me to just give a shout out to everyone listening. We've got over 120 people listening, but I thought I'd give a few shout outs to people who've just joined. We've got Shannon Noreen. We've got Stephen, who's been here all the way through. Stephen Hurley, thanks for coming. Uh, Johnny, great guy. Johnny Hampel, good to see you. Nailers Natter. Nailers Natter. Just talking to teachers, sorry. Uh, we've got Mr. Patterson here. We've got Mr. Taylor, who's been here all the way through. Nathan's here, obviously, doing the admin, but he's also here on his own account. So he's listening through two ears, Dylan. He couldn't resist. He had to get another account to listen to you in dual, <laughs> dual mode. Uh, we've got Sam as well. Uh, we've got Mr. C. Oh, God, I'm going down further down the list. We've got loads of people. Anyway, welcome to you all. If you want to tweet a question, we've still got a little bit of time left. So if you want to tweet a question, use the hashtag, hashtag TT Radio. We'll read it out if it's a good question uh, and and hope and any comments on anything we're talking about. Um, and this would probably be... Oh, go on, Dylan. Were you going to say something? No. Oh, right. I, I heard like an intake of breath, like you were going to... 
say that's something just profound. Breathing. That's just me breathing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, also, I, it would probably be a good time for me to shout out to another sponsor who's supporting this show, which is OUP Smart Curriculum Service. Um, if you want to find out more about Oxford Smart Curriculum Service, they provide secondary schools with an evidence-based curriculum at Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4. They connect the curriculum with resources, assessment, next steps, and CPD, and it's all powered by Oxford Smart Caboodle. You can find out more about this at global.oup.com, and yeah, I highly recommend checking it out. Um, it, there's one page there where it's got all the information you need uh, to be able to discover more about what they can offer in this kind of whole wrapper around package um, for curriculum. Um, also, we've got the Twitter competition, which is pinned to the space. Um, all you need to do is retweet it and follow uh, TT Radio, and uh, yeah, and then you're entered into the draw to win the five books. Um, so, Dylan, next thing, uh, another quote from you. Uh, I'm going to fire another one at you. Um, the older you are, the more that is spent on education. The research evidence shows that we need to turn that upside down. We need to spend more on the early years so then students become more autonomous learners when they are older. My first part to the question is, why do we do this? And my second part to the question is, do you think it's going to change anytime soon? Hmm. Uh, you know, we can speculate about why this is, but um, my, my hunch is because yeah, there's a huge range of factors involved here. First is that primary school has become um, feminized, and therefore, you know, you can actually get away with paying less for the, for the, that, for, you know, for, for teachers in primary rather than university lecturers. I mean, that's probably changed actually because I think university lecturers are rather paid rather poorly these days. Um, I, I just don't know what the reasons are, but I, I am convinced that we tend to spend more money on the, you know, certainly. Let's just take compulsory education. So there, there's, there's no doubt that we the, the funding formulas that are typically used allocate more money per pupil for secondary for upper secondary than for lower secondary and more in secondary than for primary. And the problem is we need to do that because they are having to deal with problems that weren't satisfactorily addressed when the children were younger. So I've become convinced by reading the literature that, you know, we could do a lot, a whole lot better in secondary if we reduce class size to 13 to 15 in key stage one, for example, and make yeah. sure the children learn to, to read um, independently. And then we could actually develop, you know, these, um, you know, students who are actually able to look after their own learning much more effectively. The, the reading is, is particularly important because of what Keith Sandovich calls Matthew effects. So, the more you read, the easier it gets. So this is, yeah. it's called a Matthew effect because of the passage in the Bible to those who are nothing, what little they have will be taken away, um, to those who have more should be given. And so we see this very strongly in reading and we, you, we see huge differences. So one study that, that I came across in the United States, if you look at 11-year-olds, the most avid reader in that class every year we'll read 4 million words. The least avid reader will read about 50,000 words. So because reading is hard for the kids who aren't very good at it, they, do, they, they try to avoid doing it. They don't do very much of it. They get worse. They, or they don't improve. And the kids who like reading actually get better and better at it. So I think we have to break into that by, as Daniel Willingham says, raising children who read. 
And so one way to do that is to equip them with, this, with those skills of automaticity that means that you don't actually have to think about what these letters are and what these words are. And you're, free, you're, you're then free to become, to, to focus on the, the content of what you're reading. And I think that the simplest policy solution would be to take a little bit of money away from the other phases, particularly sixth form, I would probably say, and give it to primary schools to reduce class sizes to 13 to 15. Yeah. Why, why do you say particularly sixth form as opposed to key stage four or, or like higher education or FE? Because I think we could actually very effectively teach classes of 40 or 50 in the sixth form. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if we've done a good job, those students shouldn't need that individual marking that, um, you know, that we, we've done a good job further down the school. Those students should be able to help each other. They should be good at peer assessment and, and peer tutoring. The, the, You're definitely the, not talking to about some of the 12s. But no, I know. Point, I take your point, though. But look at the disconnect. Yeah. We have classes of 15 to 20 in sixth form and yeah. classes of 200 in university. Now, I, I don't believe that the, dis, the, the, the that those kids suddenly at the age of 18 acquire skills that allow them to learn in in larger groups suddenly by doing their A-levels. So I, I think that we could probably get away with funding, not not, not, not huge difference, but slight, slightly less funding for six formers and using that money to fund Key yeah. Stage 1 more, more generously. That's really interesting. Any American listeners, by the way, Sorry for all the references. You'll know this better than me, Dylan, but um, sixth form would be, what would that be in the US? I don't know, because there are some US people listening. Oh, um, um, 11th, 12th grade. There we go. Thank you. Um, and, and, and for the Swedish reviews, upper secondary. <laughs> Thank you. Now, the other thing I was going to, to, to ask you about, and this leads in really nicely. And by the way, anyone who, who wants to actually talk in the space, that opportunity is coming very soon. So if you want to ask a question verbally to Dylan yourself, then you, you can request him to speak and either myself or Nathan will try to connect you in um, when that opportunity comes up. I've got a few more questions I want to go through first. This is about um, remote learning, Dylan, because in the last few years, We've obviously had the pandemic. There's been a lot of, of remote teaching going on. Now, you've said, quote, distance learning will never be as good as face-to-face. -face. I'm sure many teachers would agree with that. However, there are also many benefits to remote teaching and remote learning. When I asked the question on Twitter a few months back, many teachers actually said that uh, remote teaching um, – did bring them a reduction in workload. Many, many did say that. Many, some disagreed with that. Some said it actually increased it, but many said it, it decreased it. Also, you have issues, like, for example, if you're remote teaching, it's a silly thing, but it cuts out uh, commute time. So, you know, you might be saving, I don't know, anywhere between half an hour and 90 minutes a day or whatever. So many teachers said that. And I wondered whether you think there is a space for blended learning you mentioned sixth form there. You mentioned higher education. I mean, higher education already does it to a certain extent. But I wondered whether you think there's, there's, there's a space now for something more blended as we move up, maybe not at primary level, but as we move up through the key stages. Or whether you think that's just pandemic, put it in a box and let's move on. No, I think, first of all, pandemic, the, the pandemic has given us a crash course in information technology usage for teachers. 
So I think we shouldn't squander the huge increase in expertise that we've been forced to acquire as a result of working um, remotely. The, the point I want to make is that remote teaching is not a particularly useful concept because it's just describing whether the teacher and the students are in the same room. It tells us nothing yeah. about the kinds of processes. So the, the, the things like the flipped classroom. Now, the flipped classroom is nothing new. The flipped classroom is just efficient. The history teacher 200 years ago who said, go home, read chapter three, we'll talk about it tomorrow. You know, that, was, that is efficient teaching. because When you say 100 years ago, Dylan, that was probably my teachers in about 1997. So you yeah, can go a bit more teacher. recent, yeah. It's, it's efficient. No, I'm, I'm saying that it, it's not new. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know. But, you know, it's efficient teaching because it's doing face-to-face -face the things that can only be done face-to-face. -face. And I say to teachers, if your idea of a good lesson is standing in front of a kid, group of kids and lecturing them, there is a video on YouTube that does it better and cheaper than you. So I think what we have to do is to make sure that the time we are spending face-to-face -face is used in the most effective way. And so I, I think this depends very strongly on the age of the child. Yeah. So I think that for young children, that human contact is going to be really essential for the foreseeable future. I think we've got... Yeah. Uh, there, there are some experiments from Japan with robots that, seem, that, that people claim shows that students, children can learn from robots, but I'm not convinced by those. I think... A small group of children with an adult in the classroom will be the norm for key stage one for the foreseeable future. But Dylan, well, if we could get if we could get the robots to have your voice, though, surely that would help the children because no, you have got a very profound. No, voice. it wouldn't because it wouldn't be a human being in the classroom. <laughs> so as you know, so I do see sixth form becoming much more like PhD work. So typically, you know, with, with my PhD students, we'd meet once a week. I'd tell them, you know, the, I, these are the things I think you should be reading. Uh, have a go at this. Do some writing. Send me the writing, you know, 24 hours in advance of our meeting. We'll meet together and we'll talk about it. That kind of approach where the teacher becomes the curator of learning materials, I think, is likely to be quite effective for older students. And so the, the idea that rather than the teacher delivering a lesson on um, chemistry or whatever, it might be that children go and watch the video. And one of the things that we certainly heard from some, some students, some, some children, you know, they much preferred watching these um, lessons on video because they could stop and rewind and go through it several times just to make sure they understood it. So I think that puts things more, it, it becomes more individualized, and more personalized. And, you know, over time, I think we can probably improve not just the quality of the resources, but the quality of the ratings of these resources. So what we really need is ways of determining what are these good resources. And the other thing we have to avoid is th thinking in terms of individual lessons. You know, yeah. As I'm fond of saying, you know, a, a, a set of learning resources is no more a curriculum than a pile of bricks is a house. And so what we should be thinking about is sequences of learning materials that build up these, what psychologists call schema in, in children's head, heads that actually allow them to actually you know, do the things we want them to be able to do. And so I think that I'd, I'd like to see sixth form teaching moving more towards that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Although I'm aware I've just contradicted myself because I said <laughs> earlier, you could have 50 students in it. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, but maybe the, the teacher does that, you know, different teachers do their set pieces. And, you know, I remember seeing this at Seven Kings schools in Essex, where they actually 
had 120 students. In, I think they were year 10s. And they came together for the maths yeah. lesson. And one teacher delivered their set piece. And then, you see, what you can then do is have six formers picking up with small tutor groups of, say, 10 students as part of their community service contribution, doing tutorials with these year 10 students. So I think there are much more imaginative models we can use to, yeah. um, to improve the learning of, our, of, of young people. Got you. This is the bit now where we can hopefully, I mean, I have got a couple more questions for you, but equally, I'm hoping people are going to start calling in and we've got our first caller in, which is Lucy. Lucy, if you just click that little button in the bottom left and unmute yourself, maybe just introduce yourself and maybe you've got a question you want to ask. Hi there. Uh, can you hear me? We can, loud and clear. Oh, perfect. Hi. Uh, hi, Dylan. Um, my name is Lucy Twig. I'm a teacher at um, a sixth form college uh, and it's a brilliant sixth form college. You just uh, touched on sort of issues with the pandemic. And one of the things I found uh, this year, so I teach English, I teach A-level literature and also... I can't hear anything. Oh, really? No. That's weird. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll, can you hear me, Dylan? I can. <laughs> okay, well, Lucy, you carry on talking and I will relay the question to Dylan. <laughs> I've, I wondered if he got... Basically, um, students are incredibly resilient. Um, they do everything that we ask of them. They're, they're making progress. But the one thing I've noticed since coming back from the pandemic is oh, they have missed that interaction with their peers. Yeah. And in some cases, their emotional intelligence and, and um, not so much their independence, but but we feel that is is lacking. And I wondered if Dylan had got any sort of um, tips or techniques that we can use or embed within the curriculum that will support that interaction. Obviously, we do group work, et cetera, et cetera. But so it's, it's emotional. So it's, it's what you're asking, I suppose, is how do you support students in sixth form to develop emotional literacy and emotional intelligence yes. and, connectiv and connectivity. Yes. Dylan, did you hear that from me? Because that was the question I did, I did. from Lucy. Yeah. And, and she's in sixth form level. She's a sixth uh, form uh, teacher. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, I, I think we have very little research in this area. So I think that, and when we have very little research, I think a teacher's judgment is as good as we're going to get. So I would just be relying on expertise from other teachers. But I, I think that, I think everybody accepts that there is an emotional component to learning. I think some people have liked to pretend that it doesn't have an emotional component. And I think we have to think about, first of all, social-emotional learning, and then separately, social-emotional aspects of academic learning. So I think we should be concerned about students' well-being, and we should also separately be concerned about acknowledging the emotional part of learning things like history or, or science or, or mathematics. And I, I, I suspect that the research will become clearer over the next 10 years or so, that those may require different approaches. But, um, you know, I, as I said, this goes way beyond education because I think students' well-being is often dependent on their peer groups, their, their you know, their families, the pressures they're under to conform, you know, that I think is, is it's very messy and way beyond um, just, just schooling. Lucy, did that answer your question? Kind of. It, well, no, no, it didn't, because I said... 
<laughs> it did. Well, she says it did, Dylan. And I, I okay. feel like I'm, I feel like you're in two classrooms opposite and I'm in the corridor in between. So I'm just kind of <laughs> passing the message along here. But Lucy, I think Dylan is quite happy that it feels like you. he's answered your questionnaire. So thanks very much for calling it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Ta-ra, ta-ra. Now, Lisa is here. Dylan, we'll see if you can hear Lisa. Otherwise, I'll just relay it again like, like the middleman. Lisa, can you speak? Yeah, hi. Can you hear me okay? Dylan, can you hear Lisa? No. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> right, Lisa, you're going to speak. Uh, try and keep your question as concise as possible, and then I'll relay it to Dylan. Yeah, I will do. I've also put the question in the chat um, already. Okay. Um, I'm very keen to understand what Dylan's um, understanding about the purpose of education is and whether it aligns or contrasts with that of Biesta. Okay. Dylan, the question from Lisa is, uh, on the purpose of education and whether you align or you don't align with the work of, I think it was Biesta. I, I think, I suppose his first name is pronounced Gert, um, since he's Dutch, I think. Um, I, I think his work is very interesting in terms of the philosophy of education. But the thing I've learned is that you don't get very far telling people what education should be for. I am... This, most of my disagreements come when people think I'm advocating a particular set of outcomes for education. And I try to steer very clear of those because every teacher has to decide what they want to do in their own classroom. Teachers have way too much stuff to do. The curriculum is too full. And so they have to compromise. And I think how they compromise is a personal judgment. So I've got a lot of sympathy with the views of Hert and others in, in that sort of camp about what education should be for. But I don't talk about that because that's not what I do. What I do is try to help teachers do what they want to do better. So I never mm -hmm. tell teachers what, they should, what their students should be learning. I, I try to support teachers. Once you've decided what you want your students to get better at, how can I help? And so, um, you know, so there's a part of me thinks, you know, that work is very interesting and I think it's, it's very powerful. And I'm quite attracted to, that, to the, the kind of vision of education that he proposes. I don't think we have any prospect of getting close to that in the next 20, 30 years. And therefore, um, you know, I think it's great that some people are able to raise those kinds of questions. My focus is on being much more pragmatic in the shorter term. Lisa, I hope that's answered your question. Hopefully. Yeah, I'll take that as yes. I think it has, Dylan. It's certainly, I, I got it, I got it, I got it. And that's the main thing. Um, I was going to ask you, Dylan, next, about, um, uh, you've, you've spoken a lot about, like, teacher efficacy and how, like, it's difficult for us to understand who the, who the better teachers are in a school. Like, right. you know, like, based on residuals or or based on lesson observations or whatever i mean i just wondered whether like on the issue of lesson observations a lot of school a lot of schools still implement policies around uh whether it be um you know uh one -off, i mean some schools still do one-off graded lesson observations but certainly you've got the sliding scale spectrum going down where you've got multiple lesson observations you've got learning walks you've got lots of things and much of it can still be focused on um, 
auditing what the, what the teacher is kind of doing, if that makes right. sense, or certainly judging the quality of the teaching, therefore maybe judging the quality of the teacher. Um, so I wondered what, is, is that a waste of time then? I mean, lesson observations as an example. What does that, how does that fit in with, with that? Well, I don't think lesson observation is, is a waste of time, but most of the lesson observations that are being done currently probably are a waste of time. So let's take a step back. First of all, and nobody wants to believe this, but I think that the research shows pretty clearly that people are unable to identify more effective teachers by observing them. And they're unable to identify more effective teachers by using value-added measures of the teacher's progress as measured by standardized tests. So I, I think what we need as a starting point is a bit of humility, a bit of humility that, you know, teaching is really complex and because we're, now we can get tied up in this debate about is learning just a change in long-term memory, but let's finesse that. Most teachers want students to remember the stuff they've taught them. And so therefore, <laughs> teaching is really hard because the best teachers have students remembering the stuff they've been taught months later. So what you're trying to do is to, by looking at a lesson today, how much of what's happening in this classroom today will these students remember in six weeks' time? That's pretty hard. What makes it even harder is the work of people like Robert Bjork, one of the world's leading researchers of human memory, who shows that actually teaching that looks very straightforward and takes the students through it step by step is often less effective because the students do not encounter desirable difficulties, as he calls them. As Daniel Willingham says, yeah. memory is a residue of thought. So that's why in several studies that have been done, experienced heads, deputies, can't even reach chance levels of identifying more effective teachers. In yeah. other words, you've got teachers who are good, better than average, teachers who are worse than average. You'd be better off flipping a coin than listening to these heads and deputies. What about, what about though, in the area of, say, classroom management? Because surely that would be one where <coughs> you, you could, if you observe the teacher, like, let's say you've got teacher A and teacher B. Yep. And you've got, like, the same groups of students. So it's almost like the same focus group of students. You watch the same two teachers teach five lessons or something with that group, and then the other teacher five lessons with that group, and the behavior is, and I understand this will be the perception of the person doing the observation, of course, which is in itself probably unreliable, but they might say, well, classroom management here is exceptional, classroom management here is poor. Yeah, and they could be right. So the first question is, are those ratings reliable? So every teacher knows there are some classes you get on with and there's some classes you don't get on with. Yeah, well. yeah. And, and yeah. nobody knows why. It's just this mysterious thing. The work yeah. of Heather Hill and her colleagues suggest to get an accurate rating of a teacher's competence on a rating scale, you would need to have each teacher teaching five different classes yeah. and have each lesson observed by six independent observers. You need 30 ratings to get a handle not just how good, not, this is not even how good the teacher is. But this is, this comes it. back, Dylan, to my point about having Dylan William robots. Okay, if, if we had the robots, then we'd be able to do all the observations that we need. Yeah, but unfortunately, not going to happen. So, 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 so the, the important point is, you know, everybody I've met in education believes they know good teaching when they see it. And my argument is, yeah, we really don't. And so you can't even do it with value added because every teacher builds on the foundations laid by her predecessors. So some yes. teachers might not get very good test scores this year, but they've done a really good job of building sound foundations for future learning. <laughs> <coughs> so, 
So, you know, their, their scores might not look good this year, but that teacher will make the teacher who teaches her kids in the future better, seem to be better than they really are, because that future teacher gets to build on the foundations of the earlier teacher. Yeah. So, so, so the whole project of value-added for individual teachers, the whole project of identifying teachers' quality from observation, I think is, is basically fundamentally flawed. So coming back to the point about observations, Karl Popper famously described his own schooling as a series of unwanted answers to unasked questions. And I think teacher observation seems like that to a lot of teachers. So I think, <laughs> when does teacher observation work? When the teacher being observed has specified the focus of the observation, here's what I'm trying to get better at, and specifies to the observer the data that they would like that observer to collect to help that teacher improve their practice. And thirdly, that the data collected by the observer belongs to the teacher, not to the observer. That, I think, would create a genuinely improving system. And then, quite separate from that, you have these learning walks or walkthroughs where senior management teams collect evidence on the quality of what they're seeing. And here's the crucial point. They do not put the teacher's name on the evidence of the observation. Because the purpose is not to collect evidence on an individual teacher. It is to take the temperature, the climate of the entire school. So a 10-minute drop-in, what did you see? What was good practice? What was, what was less good? But the name of the teacher is not recorded because you're actually trying to get a survey at the school level, not trying to draw conclusions about individual teachers. Got you, got you. I mean, yeah, I mean, all that makes makes perfect sense. We've had another question, actually, from Noreen, who's one of our, our fellow hosts on, on TTR. Um, she's asking you about slant, which, in case anybody doesn't know, means S, sit up straight, L, lean your body towards the speaker, A, ask and answer questions, N, nod your head, yes and, and or no. Um, and it's... In fact, that doesn't have the T on. Uh, T, track speaker. Track the speaker. It's T. So I wondered, this is obviously from Teach Like a Champion by Doug Lamar. Yeah. I wondered whether you have any thoughts on slant, whether you think it's a good thing, a bad thing, or whatever. What do you think? I always worry whenever there is something that people agree that the majority of good teachers do. So I mean, let's, let's, take, let's take Teach Like a Champion. I think it's got lots of great wisdom in there. There is no evidence that these things are effective. So what Doug Lamoff did was to take the practices of the teachers that he thought were more effective, but he didn't base it on student progress measures. So these are the things that teachers who appear to be effective do more than teachers who appear to be less effective. We don't know whether that actually results in higher levels of student achievement. So let's put that on the table first of all. Yeah. The second thing is, what I worry about is even if something is done by 60% of teachers, should we make every teacher do it? And I think the answer is no, because we don't know enough about what makes good teaching to mandate that. A teacher could be actually made far worse by requiring them to enforce this slant rule in their, in their classrooms. I think, the, the, in particular, I think the whole idea of nodding is really bizarre because that just gives a set of cues to the teacher that the kids are getting it. If the kids are nodding because they've been told to nod... That's a really misleading signal to the teacher about whether the students understand this or not. And that's why I keep on coming back to, you know, even if the students are nodding voluntarily rather than because they've been told to, it still doesn't mean they understand it. They may think they do, but actually we know from the work of uh, David Dunning and Justin Kruger 
the less you know about something, the more likely you are to think you understand when you don't. So what worries me is these kinds of self-assessments are passing for a classroom formative assessment when students don't know that they don't know. So for me, you know, these things are just uh, proxies for good teaching. Yeah. And they're not, because we don't understand good teaching well enough, they could actually make some good teachers much worse by making them follow the rules. Interesting. I'm going to fire through some questions now, Dylan, from okay. listeners live. We've got Christian, who is in Spain, and he has a question. Here in Spain, many teachers do really think we need to reinforce first education stages. I'm not sure what, what that exactly means, but I'll carry on. Taking in consideration what you said about subjects and creativity, what would you tell teachers with kids aged three to six to foster creative learning? Any key ideas? Thank you. Exclamation mark. Well, I think the, the key idea here is that creativity needs to build on the knowledge that a child has done. So, for example, um, uh, three to six is quite difficult because there's, there's, there's not much content knowledge there. But certainly, um, just thinking about basic addition, you know, could you do mental arithmetic in your head? You know, what is two plus five? And then could you do it a different way? So just, just stressing the idea that even in maths, there are different ways of solving a problem, that um, there are different ways of explaining something. So you might ask a child to explain to somebody else how they're doing something with a painting, for example, and then ask them, can you explain it in a different way? And just getting, getting the, over the idea that there are multiple different paths to success would be a very good starting point for creativity with the young children. But my other point is that actually, at that age, I think the really important thing is not putting something into the kid, but not driving it out so i think kids of that age really are generally naturally curious and passionate and and quirky and idiosyncratic and just allowing them to to foster that so just build on that natural inquisitiveness that those those four-year-olds have that i think is, is probably the best thing to be doing yeah, Lisa Reed has texted in again, and she said it's great to hear Dylan reference Ken Robinson, as often his promotion of creativity is dismissed in the wider audience of discussion. Do you have any thoughts on Sir Ken? Well, I, I, and his work. Well, I mean, you know, I, 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 I've read all his books. I've watched most of his videos. I love his work. Unfortunately, I don't think that he plays enough, pays enough attention to the role of disciplinarily specific knowledge in creativity. So I think he's a very passionate advocate, sorry, he was a very passionate advocate yeah. for the inclusion of creativity in the curriculum. I really resonate with what he says about the role of art and music and dance and drama in our school curricula. Those need to be, you know, much more highlighted than they are. But I, unfortunately, I don't think he actually understood much about how to develop creativity. And I yeah. think that's, that's a, you know, it, just giving students place to be kind of, to do weird things is not creative because of that point. And Ken Robinson, I think, doesn't use the second part of his definition. Having novel ideas that have value. And to have value, you have to be within, but at the boundary of a community of practice. So, you, you, you know, let me give you an art example. To fine artists, Jackson Pollock isn't creative, he's irrelevant. He's too far outside what they think of as art to be at all relevant. And so I think that the, the, there's, there's always got to be a kind of a, a body of people. And then creativity is a kind of what you might call a liminal phenomenon. It's at the edge. 
and encouraging students to use the knowledge they've got to try new creative approaches is absolutely right. Um, I think Ken Robinson does a very good job of, of explaining why creativity is important. He, had, he, he never provided much insight that I found useful about how to get that happening, how to make students more creative in the classroom. Got a question from Paul Bennett. He says, um, high stakes testing and assessment generates lots of debate, especially in the wake of COVID-19 school disruptions. Does it have a place? And if so, what form should it take? And how does it fit in with the overall mix of things? I know you did an article recently for the TES on this. I wondered what your answer to that question would be. High stakes testing and assessment. I think there's reasonably clear evidence that the presence of some kind of goal towards which teachers and students work improves educational outcomes. And so I think as a, that's basically a way of saying high stakes assessments do improve student performance in, in modern education systems, including on things that are not just the things that are in the assessment. The problem is <clears throat> the way that they're implemented in most jurisdictions, the negatives of high stakes assessment more than counteract the positives. So my search has been for ways of finding systems of high stakes assessments where the positives outweigh the negatives. And I think that there's no doubt in my mind that there are basically five things we have to do. The system has to be distributed. We shouldn't be collecting data only at the end of the course, you know, the A-level or the end of upper secondary yeah. school. But the system also has to be synoptic. So in the US, for example, a kid's performance in high school is measured by their grade point average, which is the average of the grades they received in every grade in high school. And so students can be dragged down by poor performance in ninth and 10th grades, even though they've been stellar in 11th and 12th grades. So I think the, the second requirement is that the assessment system has to be synoptic. Students have to assemble all the things they've learned. They can't just learn stuff and get a grade and then forget it. The third thing is it has to be extensive. It has to assess everything we think is important. So in English, speaking and listening, as well as reading and writing. In science, exploratory and experimental work, as well as you know, solving scientific problems. It has to be manageable so that teachers don't actually have um, additions to their workload. And it has to be trusted by key stakeholders. So those are the five things, distributed, synoptic, extensive, trusted, and manageable. And no system can do all those things well, but by using those five things as a framework, I think we can probably come up with better assessment systems than we have right now by saying, okay, here's the trade-offs we're making, and we're making them for the following reasons. One particular consequence of that is that we have to, this is particularly for the, for the UK audience, yeah. we have to involve teachers' judgments in high-stakes assessments. Now, the involvement of teacher assessment in national curriculum assessment and public examinations has been disastrous. You know, in GCSE, we had coursework. The problem with coursework is it was never coursework. It was, it was never the work of the course. It was always extra bits that were tacked onto the course to provide some kind of standardized assessment. So I think that what we need to be doing is looking at ways of combining teachers' judgments, which rely on a huge amount of evidence about what students can actually do, but some form of external reference measurement so that teachers are giving consistent scores across the country. And that's, yeah. so it's a way of combining some kind of external standardized assessment with teacher judgments 
I think provides the best way forward. Um, I hope that answers your question, Paul. Um, I was going to ask you, Dylan, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to ask you last little bit about teacher training. Right. Now, we've seen quite a trend in the last, I don't know what it would be, kind of 10, 15 years. We've seen the emergence of Teach First, for example. We've seen the emergence, I don't know what the American version of that is, but we've, we've seen the emergence of, if you like, in-school training um, and, and I guess to a certain extent, university teacher training institutions have um, have had to evolve or maybe university-based training has has diminished slightly in terms of against these other kind of competitors. I wondered, training as a teacher, what is the best in, in pathway? Is there a best pathway for a teacher training? I trained in, in Aberystwyth, where you, I think you mentioned earlier, Dylan, that you, I can't remember what it was, whether you studied or lived or, or I can't remember, but I was at Aberystwyth. It was a very traditional PGCE course, right? I feel like it served me well, but, I know that I spent in that course probably 12 weeks university-based, right? And, that, and there are many that don't have that. I mean, how do, you, how do you see things in that area? Do you have any opinion on it? Or, or do you just think whatever the pathway suits that individual, crack on? I think we need to be aware that it's very difficult to, um, to create good teacher education programs within these existing frameworks, whereby, for historical reasons, on a 36-week course, 24 weeks have to be spent on school premises, even when the schools aren't particularly geared up for that. Um, and so, you know, I, I and I speak as somebody who actually has run several teacher training courses. Yeah. We don't generally see a, a genuine partnership between schools and institutions. But I'm also very aware of how little we can do in a one-year preparatory course. So there's a big debate about whether teacher training should be a one-year course or a four-year course. I think we start, should start thinking about it as a 40-year course. The idea is that we, people want to be teachers, we work with them, and the, what they do pre-service then moves seamlessly into what they do in-service. I'm thinking about this as a continuing process. The other thing to remember, I think, is that education is, is very unusual in that we expect people, right from qualification, to be assuming 90% of the workload yeah. of an experienced veteran. And so I would, I would rather see some, some different kinds of models. Guy yeah. Claxton and I once talked about uh, our ideal one-year PGCE, maybe doing one term in college and then two years in schools. See, the, the yeah. one term in college is like survival tactics then two yeah. years in school, then you come out for two terms where you actually reflect on and make yeah. sense of your experience in terms of the theories that you know educational analysts have developed. So there's that kind of model. There's the idea of just um, you know, a few days in, in school, a few days in college, and that proportion of school-based stuff increases. There's lots of different models we could, we could actually yeah. uh, explore. But I think that right now, this whole idea of either four years or one or an undergraduate degree with one year tacked on and then you are f fully fledged as a teacher i think that model makes no sense at all to me and uh, but the, the even more important point as somebody who never trained as a teacher we don't know if it works you yeah. know 
people always say, well, I'm sure I was a better teacher as a result of doing a year's PGC than if I hadn't done it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But the comparison we should make is, what would the what would the comparison be between you after a year on a PGCE and you after a year in the deep end in a school? Yeah. So uh, Trevor Fletcher, former uh, inspector of schools, used to say that the reason for getting rid of that kind of in at the deep end approach was not because it didn't work. It's it's a basically a sink or swim approach and many people sank. So he, th- he thought that we lost too many people because they tried teaching out and because it was too much of a, of a sharp change they gave up whereas a more kind of structured approach a gentler immersion in the in the practice would have actually enabled those people to develop the skills to survive so i think it's really really complicated the important point i would say is universities you assumed they had a right to educate teachers and therefore they were somewhat arrogant about not researching it we have no idea whether one year's pgce makes people any better and I think um, it's therefore not surprising that governments have actually tried different kinds of routes. Uh, we have almost no evidence in this area, you know, whether the school-based routes are any better, whether Teach First or Teach, Amer- Teach for America in the US. Yeah. We, we have almost no evidence about whether these things are better. What I do think is that any teacher training course should have a very heavy dose of practical experience. But I would actually have teachers working with groups of four students. So the, the model that Joe Bowler and I used on the PGC at King's many years ago was on Mondays, we would take our students in and pairs of, te- of student teachers would work with groups of four children on, for example, maths. And the idea was that they would learn to teach before they learned to manage classes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because now teachers have to do the crowd control and the learning how to explain things at the yeah. same time. And I would separate those two processes out. Blooming heck, Dylan! They were such good ideas. I love that. I, I love that two-year, that two to three-year model that you, you said that you you and Guy Claxton talked about. It's really cool. Um, listen, before I thank you profusely, um, in about thirty seconds' time, Shaniqua is actually on talking about prison education in teaching. So if you click, go to the website ttradio.org. Um, just click listen live and she will be starting her show in literally about 10 seconds time. Um, I'd just like to thank the sponsors of the show with the Slack group and OUP uh, and their their tweets are pinned to the space at the top. So if you're either listening back to this as a recording or you're listening right now, check them out. They've got a free event on the 29th about autism, which is a, a looks a fantastic event and it's free as well to attend that on Wednesday. Um, uh, in terms of Uh, moving forward if you want to listen back to this obviously it will sit within twitter on the teachers talk radio twitter page but also we're going to be publishing it as a podcast so it will be available on spotify apple podcasts all the usual directories just follow teachers talk radio on there dylan i just want to say thank you ever so much for giving up 90 minutes of your time it's been absolutely amazing you absolute welsh legend thank you it's been fun it's been a lot of fun, and thank you ever so much. And uh, yeah, enjoy. I don't wait. You're in Florida, right? Yes. Enjoy, enjoy Florida, and uh, and and cheers. Thanks for coming. Cheers, Dylan. Bye. Oh, that was Dylan Willen. Wow. Oh my goodness. Um, absolutely fantastic, everyone. Thank you ever so much for attending this space. Uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. Thanks for everyone who got involved as well, uh, asking questions, whether that be tweeting, whether that be actually calling in. 
Um, it's been brilliant to have everyone along and um, getting involved. Loads of people sending hearts. Thanks ever so much. Um, but the big thanks, obviously, is to Dylan, who gave up 90 minutes of his time. I've learned a huge amount in the last 90 minutes. So thanks, uh, thanks a big deal to him for, for doing that. And, uh, yeah, and keep listening to Teachers Talk Radio. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back in about, well, I think Shanique was already started at ttradio.org, listen live. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see you soon. We'll hear you all soon. See you all soon. Cheers. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.